From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting, though, taking a look at the number of hotel rooms and a hotel room shortage in Vancouver. It's not new, but there was supposed to be more progress made on this by now. Royce Schwinn is the CEO of Destination Vancouver and is joining us on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Royce, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Jill, thanks very much for having me. Uh, this is something that uh, we know hotel rooms uh, certainly uh, were uh, part, uh, well, with COVID, not a lot of people were visiting and hotel rooms weren't being used. But now with things getting back on track, what is the situation with the amount of available hotel rooms in Vancouver? Well, since 2010, since the Olympics, we've actually gone in the opposite direction. We're down Vancouver specifically 1,500 rooms. At the same time, coming out of COVID, there's been a global demand for Vancouver, and we've seen the build happen for Vancouver. So the net result is we've got more visitors coming in and not enough hotels to satisfy that demand, and that's driving up rate. And ultimately, it's going to cause us to lose business, and people are going to go to other destinations. What caused the loss, do you think, of the 1,500 rooms? I don't think it was one thing. Certainly some of the hotels uh, were re repurposed for uh, affordable supportive housing, uh, also a climate to build. Here was more office space, so that's, that was more of the focus, and developers were going somewhere else, uh, as well as Vancouver did not have a very strong development policy that would really encourage hotel development here, so there was a real lag in interest in developing properties for Vancouver. We've talked a lot recently as well about short-term rentals and the rules when it comes to private homes and short-term rentals or Airbnbs. Is that having an impact, do you think, in that people that maybe would go to Airbnbs aren't and are there for instead taking up hotel rooms? For sure, uh, Airbnb or short-term rentals are making a difference in picking up some of that slack. We note that as we track rates, though, that rental rates for short-term rentals are not uh, typically now any different than a hotel rate. So that's causing uh, consumers to question the value of getting a short-term rental with no services or amenities versus staying in a hotel, which, of course, you get those services and amenities. So we know SDRs are going to be here to stay. It's a matter of how we manage them within the overall room need for the city. Uh, when you mentioned as well the uh, policies or as far as uh, the, uh, the climate, I suppose, for building more hotels or for investing in those, why is it that Vancouver is not an attractive place to do that? One of the things that often comes up is real estate. And as you know, we have such a small footprint downtown specifically, and the zoning area is available to hotels. And that's been one of the biggest uh, stumbling blocks, as I understand it. And the other part of it, of course, is development or policy development. And is the city active in that particular space? Recognizing we've got so many pressures put on us in terms of affordable housing, uh, commercial real estate, and so on. So I think it's a, a mix of things. However, given the changes coming out of the pandemic with return to work or not return to work uh, and real estate here uh, that could be purposed for something else, uh, hotels make sense because there is that global demand for Vancouver. Uh, I'm just even thinking of downtown Vancouver and, and the, the Four Seasons kind of uh, getting the facelift and uh, shutting mm-hmm. down to, to, to be redone. Uh, what kind of an impact does that have, having one giant hotel like that shutting down completely? 
oh, quite a bit. If you think about immediately pulling out, you know, three, four, five hundred rooms out of the market that easily could be sold. The, the trickle down effect to that is not only do we not have those visitors, but the visitor impact that we have in the city, whether it's our attractions, retail, uh, restaurants, our ability to compete for certain convention business, big uh, big conventions that want to come to Vancouver, it can impact our ability to host certain sporting events or book long-term business. And then that trickle down uh, hits our suppliers, whether or not you're, you're a refrigeration repairman or whether you are working in the farm to table and you are uh, producing agriculture, uh, linen, uh, wedding uh, suppliers, those kinds of things. It does have a massive knockdown effect into our economy. We do have some pretty big events planned for Vancouver in the next few years. Uh, people will know that we've talked about the Invictus Games are coming to town, uh, the uh, the FIFA World Cup. I know when that was announced, there was also the talk of there could be even be a special levy for hotel rooms to help uh, as far as infrastructure to help with these events. So if we have this shortage and we're already dealing with this shortage and this reduction in rooms, where is everyone going to stay? That's a great question. Uh, what we do know, what we do think is going to happen is that the uh, accommodations is going to spread out in, into the lower mainland, into the greater Vancouver Regional District, it's probably as far out to Chilliwack. We'll probably have people be staying out on Vancouver Island, and no doubt people will be staying in Washington State and coming across the border, uh, short-term rentals. So there's a number of, of different places that people can go, but it really will spread out uh, where visitors are going to be that may make it a little less convenient to be closer to the action. You kind of, you talked earlier about the different types of hotels as well. When we're talking about that 1,500 rooms and the loss of those those rooms, are, are they mainly a certain price point of rooms or as far as the higher end, are we talking about boutique options or is there anything, is it a mix of all different types of rooms? Certainly, we are lacking for a mix of, of rooms uh, for the city, anywhere from, from two to five star for sure. And, and we lost that stock uh, over the last, uh, you know, since the Olympics, since 2010. So uh, certainly in the market can service any one of those ranges of hotels. And we're in need of any of those ranges because, again, the demand is there. And there's so many different price points. We could very, very easily attract those visitors to Vancouver, make it easier for people with different budgets to come and visit Vancouver. And when you talked as well about the rates, so with the shortage of rooms, uh, I guess, is that good news for the hotels that are operating in that they're able to charge much higher rates, bad news for tourists? It is, it is truthfully. The rates are much higher in hotels. It's better for hotels and their operating, uh, their operating lines, considering the impacts that they took over the last three years operating at single-digit occupancy, the flip side is that it obviously is more out of people's uh, pocketbook. However, this trend isn't specific to Vancouver. We notice we track hotel rates. It is all around the world and certainly in our competitive cities, whether it's Toronto, Montreal, Calgary, San Diego, Chicago, London and on. It's everywhere that hotels are up. So what do you see moving forward? And I know that you, the Destination Vancouver, commissioned a report on this. Uh, I'm curious what your thoughts are moving forward into the next even five, ten years. Where are we going to be with these rooms if something pretty significant isn't done? 
we don't do anything, we're going to we're going to lose millions of dollars in direct business as a result of not having capacity. And again, the knock-on effect to all of the services that help support a visitor economy here as a result of being, bringing people in. However, on the flip side of that, once we uh, produced that MMP report and shared it out, we really have an engaged council. We've had a number of phone calls with interested developers in coming to Vancouver. The consideration to think differently on existing commercial buildings and repurposing them to hotels. There's a different energy now that we need to grab hold of to start thinking about the development cycle over the next 10 to 15 years. And I I really think that there's some traction starting to happen here finally. Uh, More to be done, uh, certainly as council comes back in the fall. Uh, But we like very cautiously optimistic in the trajectory that we're seeing right now. Hmm. Interesting when you talk about that as well, the commercial buildings to hotels, because uh, I remember even during the pandemic, walking around downtown Vancouver, seeing commercial buildings going up at a time when so many people were working from home and there was the idea, maybe people aren't going to come back full time in that we had all of this commercial space. It seems like a bit of a roundabout way of getting hotel rooms. But is that something that that could be done as far as uh, finding a way to convert those? Absolutely. Uh, That is not a new idea, which is great. It is tried and it's true. There's a couple of potential conversion projects uh, right now in the books in Vancouver. It would give us some immediate hotel stock, which we're we're desperate and we need that. And these buildings aren't sitting empty. So it it would be attracting more people to those areas, more population, more visitors walking around and more energy for the city. And that's not a bad thing. No, and time-wise, is it a lengthy project or, or is it, I mean, I guess since the building is already constructed, it's it's converting it, but is it something that can be done pretty, uh, can it be expedited? Yes, my understanding and talking to developers is that it could be done fairly quickly. It all depends, of course, on uh, planning and policy decisions at the city level to allow those permits. But effectively, you've got the structure. It's a matter of reconfiguring it on the inside to a style of hotel uh, that would be needed, that would fit the footprint. And it could be done, uh, potentially, depending on the size of the building, maybe in time for FIFA. Maybe. Hmm. All right. Well, Royce, we will check back with you and I'm sure talk about this some more. But thank you so much for joining us and for bringing us up to date on this. Joe, thanks very much for having us. Appreciate it. Coming up a little bit later this half hour, we are going to check in with Environment Canada and find out exactly what the temperatures are going to be like this week and going ahead through much of BC, we know, is going to be experiencing very warm temperatures. So we'll have the very latest on that. And in light of that weather, we're also hearing from advocates for many renters in this province saying that it might be time to set a maximum temperature allowable for rental housing and that in doing that would protect the most vulnerable tenants when it comes to dangerous heat. Joining us to talk about what this might look like is Emily Rogers, Director of Operations with Together Against Poverty Society. Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. What would this look like then as far as setting a maximum temperature allowable when it comes to rental housing? Yeah, so in uh, the city of Victoria and in the city of Vancouver and in in multiple other municipalities around the province, we have what are called standard of property maintenance bylaws. And currently those bylaws uh, say that the uh, heating facilities in a rental unit should be capable of maintaining a minimum 
indoor temperature of um, at least 21 degrees in Victoria and it's 22 degrees in Vancouver. So what that bylaw says is that the landlord has to provide a heating system that keeps the unit um, at a minimum temperature throughout the winter months. You know, as we're seeing the effects of climate change and we're seeing more and more instances of extreme heat, we think that it's time to look at the inverse and look at um, how hot uh, a rental unit can be before, you know, the landlord is compelled to to put in a system that will bring the heat down in that space. And I, I guess, like you said, so there are places that have those rules when it comes to cold temperatures. Is there anywhere yeah. that you know of that, that is already doing this or that has the maximum allowable temperature? Not in BC, no. I'm not aware of anyone or any municipality or any jurisdiction that has a position on maximum temperature. Um, certainly, we haven't seen anything from the province yet about this. Um, and, and we would love to see, you know, the, the province uh, step in and, and, and take a leadership position when it comes to extreme heat in, in rental units. And how do you see, what would it look like as far as, and would it be, again, kind of the flip side of if a place is too cold, a landlord must mm-hmm. make sure there's something in there to heat the place or be able to bring it to that temperature. Would it then be the same in that a landlord would have to provide an air conditioner or provide ways to cool apartments down? That's right. And and I don't want to prescribe what that it would exactly look like. You know, the, the landlord has a lot of discretion in terms of how uh, they want to provide a heating system that keeps it uh, hot enough. Um, and I, I would expect the same to be true that the landlord would have quite a bit of discretion in terms of how to keep it cool enough. Um, you know, in 2021, we saw that 600 Sorry, 619 people died from the extreme heat wave. Um, 98% of those deaths happened inside people's homes. And the majority of those deaths happened in low-income neighbourhoods. So um, I do think that it is uh, important and reasonable for uh, us to be having this conversation and for the you know, burden of action to be on the landlord just as it is in, in cold temperatures. Right. And, and I think that was, uh, I was hoping to ask you about that as well, in that we yeah. see that the province is doing this whole um, uh, rollout with BC Hydro when it comes to providing air conditioners for people. Uh, been, a, I think, a few glitches or maybe not happening as fast as people would like. There certainly has been a conversation about some people not being allowed to have air conditioners in, in their units for a number of reasons. Uh, do, you, do you think there's a way around that? Or, or I mean, the end goal, like you, like you saying we saw so many people lost their lives in that heat dome the end goal is to stop that from help uh, from happening again that's absolutely right that's the bottom line we know that people with disabilities are more likely to be renters we know that seniors on fixed incomes are more likely to be renters and at the end of the day it's the landlord's responsibility to provide a home that's safe and unfortunately that includes heat um you know i, I think that the province has good intentions with the uh, program that they've rolled out. Um, I, I certainly don't think that it, the scale is sufficient to keep up with um, how many people are suffering in the heat. I think there was only 8,000 uh, units provided, which, you know, it, is good for those folks, but, but doesn't sort of address the more systemic issue that this is a conversation that we need to be having, um, you know, in terms of what the law says. Um, and then I also think that the the way that that program was rolled out with BC Hydro was unfortunately much too complicated. Um, it involves, you know, this whole energy assessment of the home. And yes, that's important. We want energy assessments to be done on homes. But this is really about safety and it's 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 an urgent safety issue that needs to be addressed.
And I guess even at that point, too, and like you said, there were so many questions about that program, even the question of cost. If it's something that's being done outside of the BC Hydro program, the air conditioning program, uh, people will know that to add air conditioning, whether you have to upgrade something for, for that, the air conditioning unit itself, the amount of electricity, the amount of energy it uses, all of those things add to costs, which I'm guessing then opens up a whole other question of, like you said, if we're talking about in so many cases, uh, the most vulnerable, uh, people who are living with disabilities maybe don't have a huge amount of disposable income, then uh, mm-hmm. there seems to be even more barriers perhaps to maintaining that cool temperature or a livable temperature. Yeah, that, you're absolutely right. There, it, it's a multifaceted uh, question. I, I do think that we have a, a fairly effective blueprint for how to handle um, these sorts of questions with with cold, we've we've contemplated whose responsibility it is to maintain a certain temperature in the rental unit when it comes to cold. I think we need to apply that same logic to heat. Uh, do you think maybe is because it is somewhat new and uh, and that's a, a good thing that we've not seen fatal heat domes mm-hmm. every year, but we did unfortunately see that one, uh, and that it's also easier in many cases in that if you're talking about putting a space heater in a living room, uh, even though there can mm-hmm. be safety concerns there, that is a lot mm-hmm. easier than figuring out a way to get a, whether it's a portable air conditioning unit or some kind of air conditioning to cool down a room. That's true. I, I do think it's more complicated. It, it's also more complicated to define extreme heat. We know that heat sort of accumulates inside differently than it does outside. So it, this conversation is very new and and we need experts from a whole bunch of different fields to uh, contribute their knowledge and weigh in on the most practical and reasonable way to go about this. Um, But, you know, I'm seven months pregnant and uh, I borrowed a uh, portable air conditioner from my mother-in-law this summer and um, you know, it's it's pretty small and it, it only cools down one room in, in our in our home, but it's pretty effective and it plugs into a regular wall socket. Uh, there's a simple tube that goes out the window and it took me 10 minutes to set up. Um, so I, I don't think it needs to be that complicated. Um, there are increasingly efficient technologies that provide cooling, uh, you know, that are cooling systems. And I, I think we need to be drawing upon those and, and sort of not not complicate this more than it needs to be. Right. So there are uh, studies being done. I know in Vancouver, there's uh, an indoor heat temperature survey that's happening. I think other places are doing that as well. Uh, Do you think enough is being done at this point even to research this and figure out what would be the most effective way to combat the the high heat? I think it's going to be an increasingly important conversation. I think it's one that many of us are uh, relatively new to. you know, as an advocacy organization, we are relatively new to this conversation. We uh, are recognizing that this is something that is going to happen year after year. Uh, it is our new normal, unfortunately, and part of that is uh, adapting to the extreme heat. So, um, yes, more needs to be done. Um, we are we are very uh, inexperienced, I think, as a coastal society in. Uh, grappling with extreme heat, but unfortunately that's where we are and and we have to recognize that this is um, an increasingly urgent priority. Emily Rogers, thank you so much for your time and for coming on the show to talk more about this. Thank you so much for having me. Take care.
we talk about housing a lot and it is certainly an issue whether you're living in Vancouver, parts of Metro Vancouver, the Fraser Valley, other parts of BC as well. Could Ottawa fix the problem if the federal government really felt like doing it? Well, my next guest says yes, there's even an example of them doing it before. Tristan Hopper is a columnist with the National Post and joins us now. Tristan, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. You make a point of or talk about the fact that this has been done before. Uh, if we go back to the 1970s. So take us back to what the federal government of the time did then when it came to housing. So, yeah, there's shocking numbers uh, from the 1970s. So in terms of just housing completions, so this is the number of new houses being built every year. Uh, in the 70s, there wasn't a single year in which it was less than 200,000 new houses per year. And in some of the peak years, so 1974, you're looking at north of 240,000 new houses per year. Now, by comparison, uh, double the population these days, and we're not even getting close to that. Um, so we're looking, even with the you know, ramp up of the last couple of years, uh, we're still looking at 190,000 per year. So you have a Canada 50 years ago with half as many people, much lower rate of immigration, and way more houses being built. So obviously that's why houses were affordable. There was a lot more houses uh, around. So that's mostly due to federal action. So uh, federal government of the early 1970s, late 1960s, and that's Trudeau's dad, that's the Pierre Trudeau government. Um, they basically saw rising levels of poverty. They saw increasing home, housing afford, uh, unaffordability. Although it wasn't nearly as bad as it is now, um, they saw a little bit of housing and affordability and basically just opened the floodgates of building as much as possible. So um, they used methods that probably wouldn't work nowadays as well for reasons I can get into. But basically, the feds just said, uh, here's a whole bunch of programs to per, uh, spur private construction. And here's a whole pile of programs uh, to, per, uh, to spur public uh, construction, so subsidized affordable housing, et cetera. And they just unleashed both of those at once. And almost overnight, you just had construction everywhere um, to the point where it, it only took a couple of years until you're reaching rates, rates of housing completion that have never been surpassed since. Uh, do you think that one of the issues too, though, and, and I get what you're saying, and, and by opening those doors and allowing the building and, and just allowing it to go full speed ahead, but things are so much different now also when you look at salaries compared to what houses cost? Uh, a little bit, yeah. Uh, but if you, if you sort of compare, are you, are you getting at that... Uh it didn't. It didn't take you know twenty years of your of your yearly salary oh, to buy a no, house. No, 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 no. It, it maybe yeah, took yeah, two yeah. Or, or or two and a half. So yeah, if you factor in inflation, and I've written a few stories about this. So even if you would factor in the fact that interest rates were higher, um, particularly for that brief period in the nineteen eighties, and you know inflation and wages were lower, you factor all of those things in all these sort of baby boomer arguments like it all day. Um, it's still way easier. Uh, and way more affordable to buy a home at any point in Canadian history, except for right now. Um, so I guess what's notable about all this is you're looking at uh, people sort of can't buy homes uh, in the early 1970s. And that was enough to spur the government into this you know, all out action to get houses built absolutely everywhere uh, versus today where no one, you know, basically the entire middle class can no longer buy homes under any circumstances. And you have a federal government that's doing, let's say, nothing. 
And, and certainly that's been a lot of the criticism, even more so with the uh, the new ad that was put out by the Conservatives with clips of the current Trudeau Prime Minister uh, with early on in his mandate saying housing is our top priority. We're going to make sure we have action on this file to fast yeah. forward to today saying, ah, actually, that's not really under federal jurisdiction. Nothing we can do. Yeah, and it, it, it's interesting because, I mean, it's not an inherently conservative issue um, to take a t- attack on this. So that's what's so strange is that if you went back 50 years, uh, the build houses everywhere party was the liberals. Uh, and then they sort of opened the floodgates, as I mentioned, of just getting housing built absolutely everywhere all the time. And it was so popular that when the progressive conservatives defeat the liberals, uh, Brian Mulroney comes to power, um, they kind of let it ride with these programs. Um, it would sort of fall apart in the late 1980s. Uh, but in the mid-1980s, I mean, these, as someone who was born in 1987 and his, I mean, his entire adult life has just seen housing unaffordability get worse, uh, to read some of these reports, it's like it's from a different planet. Uh, I mean, you're seeing government reports saying Canadians are the best housed on Earth. Our public housing programs are, you know, the envy of the rest of the world. People should look to us as a model. We did absolutely everything right, and that's why... Most Canadians, even those on a single income, you know, lower middle class, um, they can buy a house in almost any city in the country. Um, it's uh, completely foreign uh, to, to someone of my generation. Well, and you even have a, a quote in the piece, in your piece in the National Post, uh, quoting the then housing minister. What, this was from 1987, saying, we've tripled our housing stock, rehabilitated the best of our older buildings. Canadians are among the best housed people in the world. You're right. You would uh, look yeah, at and that. and that's not a liberal. So these are liberal policies, and that's a conservative saying that about those policies. So uh, this was sort of both parties were very much in agreement that uh, building houses everywhere and using it with federal power and federal money was the right thing to do. Right. Uh, do, do you think that the difference, and we often hear from people too, questioning the federal government getting out of specifically co-op housing, uh, saying that that was actually a program that worked really well and it was a type of housing that that was very much, it, it filled a specific need and it was a, an affordable type of housing and that getting mm-hmm. out of that was something that, that really left a huge hole in, in part of the housing oh, equation yeah, yeah. that's it's needed. One of several things they got out of. So, so in the 70s, I mean, what's, what's notable about it is it's not uh, we put more money into co-op housing or we put more money into, you know, this particular subsidy. It was everything all at once. Um, so there's a lot of emphasis on co-op housing. There was a lot of emphasis on uh, affordable housing. It was a huge emphasis on spurring the private market through sort of, you know, private sector um, incentives and tax credits. And, you know, you would get a tax credit if you build rental housing. It was just everything all at once. And that's why you had, I mean, now it's laughable. You'll have the federal government say, oh, we're going to build 16,000 affordable homes over the next 10 years or something. Just some incredibly low amounts. I mean, that's Concept a, of a level of affordable homes that used to be built in one year in Canada. And again, when the country was half the size. Hmm. Do you think, are there factors as well in that, uh, but, but I think you, you kind of touched on this or explained this, that even if you work in inflation and you work in the difference in salaries, yes, everything costs more and permits cost more, land costs more, but there should still be some way to get this housing built. Well, the one barrier in the way now uh, is this is somewhat easier in the 1970s because we weren't nearly as dense. So even a city like Vancouver uh, in a city like Toronto, um, this housing boom was pretty much as easy as you just go to a farm field that's 20 minutes away from the core, even in a major city like Toronto, and you just build a whole bunch more subdivisions. 
Um, you can't really do that anymore. Um, we've sort of sprawled to our limits, except for Alberta. You can kind of sprawl in Alberta. Um, but you've sort of filled in all the empty land in Vancouver. So to do this, you have to densify. And we have all these pain in the ass city councils who don't approve anything anywhere. So uh, you would have to have the 1970s incentive programs and monies paired with uh, you've got to do something about the municipalities uh, not greenlighting growth. So that's why you are seeing policies in B.C., in Ontario, and the Conservative Party is proposing it federally uh, where you just start kneecapping municipalities. Um, you know, you can't zone single-family homes anymore. Uh, you can't reject a fourplex, et cetera. Which we've seen in B.C. as well, and, and some municipalities and cities don't like it so much, but uh, others love it, saying that, that if that's what's needed to get the housing built, then somebody needs to, whether it's steamrolling over a civic council, somebody needs to do something to get these shovels in the ground. That's right. So you didn't really have those problems in the 70s because, again, um, you're just sort of building low-density uh, subdivisions um, in areas that were, you know, for all intents and purposes, uh, empty. Uh, and you had really pro-development uh, city councils. Uh, like it, the Vancouver example, I'm forgetting his name, um, but that mayor, there's a picture of him riding a wrecking ball um, mm. just as a symbol of how pro-development he was. Now, you know, you can criticize he, there was there was negative aspects to that, but this was not a civic government uh, that really poo-pooed a, a large affordable housing development. Uh, Tristan, one other question you brought this up too, and I and I remember, or you can talk to people, I'm sure in Toronto, other cities as well, that are very very coveted neighborhoods, and they'll say, oh yes, but when I bought this house in the '70s, people thought I was nuts to be moving so far away from the city center, and mm-hmm. our house was extremely affordable because nobody wanted to live here. Uh, like you said, that's not happening now. There aren't big areas where you can no, build more no, subdivisions. The one weird thing I've, I've lived in uh, Edmonton or Victoria is where you'll have an area that is just a sub, considered a suburb of the city, and you have new developments surrounding what used to be a campground. So you'll have this sort of you know rural camping resort surrounded by homes on all sides. And it's like, well, in the, in the 70s, this was the middle of nowhere, and now it's just another part of the subdivision. Uh, so you'll get this sort of eerie feeling like, people camped here? This was, but so, yeah, um, the sprawl is sort of over, and if you're going to do a building boom like this, it has to be converting existing housing into something denser, which is trickier for a variety of political reasons. Oh, absolutely. There's a, there's always some pushback or a difference of opinion. Or you just on build that. a new Canada. That's been proposed <laughs> as well. You just build uh, completely new cities in the boreal forest. Um, not the craziest. No, it is the craziest idea, but that would work too. <laughs> well, Tristan, it's a very, very interesting piece. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Great to chat with you again. Thank you. Right now, though, we are talking about a controversial topic, this being the grizzly bear hunt. You'll likely recall that the grizzly bear hunt in this province, with the exception of some hunting by Indigenous people for food, social or ceremonial purposes. Apart from that, the B.C. government banned grizzly hunting. This was back in December of 2017. However, there is a new framework out. It's actually 75 pages. It is called the Grizzly Bear Stewardship Framework. And it takes a look at potentially potentially setting a new direction for grizzlies in this province. And that is, once again, raising a few concerns. Joining us to talk more about this is Nicholas Scapolati, who is the executive director of the Grizzly Bear Foundation. Nicholas, thank you so much for taking some time today. 
Thanks for having me, Jill. It's nice to be on the program. Well, I'm so glad that you could join us to talk more about this because it is always something that is quite controversial. Uh, As I mentioned, this stewardship framework, it's a 75-page document that takes a look at how BC uh, deals with, I suppose, the grizzly bear population and uh, the different factors there. What are your concerns about this new framework, given that the, the hunt itself was banned back in 2017? I think what you said there, Jill, is really key, is that traditionally people thought of managing nature, if you can do such a thing, uh, and they called it wildlife management. And that comes out of, for those who've read Alden Leopold, uh, it's an old way of doing, uh, of managing wildlife through hunting. Uh, What's key about this, and what's so special, and I commend the BC government for doing this, is working with First Nations and their leadership now calls this a stewardship framework. This is, uh, in the conservation world, this is a major shift. This is showing that our relationship is changing. We're not looking at old ways. We're going to work through science and Indigenous knowledge and look at the welfare and conservation of this iconic, wonderful species and be stewards to them. And that's that's like a seismic shift in wildlife management. And that's one of the reasons I'm so excited about this report is that it's so close. The BC government has done some great work and then it's sort of been whittled down by, you know, the civil servants and it's become this document that's kind of lost its political gravitas. You know, the people of British Columbia clearly support the conservation of this species. Um, And there's some real challenges with it as it is, particularly leaving the door open for hunting. And looking through through the document, and it it touches on that. It certainly it, it looks at those different parts of of the conversation. Uh, the framework, though, one of the, the notes in it, I think, that is getting a lot of attention as well, is saying that when the hunting of grizzly bears, when that was banned in 2017, uh, it wasn't specifically or directly in response to a conservation concern. Rather, it was largely a reflection of many British Columbians' ethical or moral opposition towards grizzly bear hunting. Uh, what do you take from that quote from the framework? Well, what's interesting about that is that's a perspective, and that's one of the you know, problems I have with this document is that it's full of just statements that don't really have anything to back it up. A document like this should be referenced. It should have terms defined so that it's useful for the people that use it, the conservation groups, the government staff, First Nations resource staff. And it's missing that. And it's full of statements like that that are just conjecture. Um, And that's how I feel about that. What what are your thoughts then on on there are some indigenous groups there are certainly guide outfitters that would make the argument there can be a grizzly bear hunt that is done in a way that is not it's not dangerous to the population that is done in a way that could ethically be done. Well, I think that um, what we're hearing from is a small handful of maybe three or four nations. So there's over two hundred distinct First Nations in BC, most of which don't want to hunt grizzly bears. And you can see it in the framework. They've described it as not only are grizzly bears seen as a relative and a teacher um, in their culture, but also recognized for their importance as a keystone species. Um, And so even when you look at that argument, the majority of First Nations that are making uh, 
income off of grizzly bears is from viewing. And even when the grizzly, um, when the province ended the, uh, the hunt in 2017, they noted that point that it brought in way more revenue than hunting ever had. And that's not quoted in the report. So why, you know, there's things like that missing, which leads me to think that there's this shift. Clearly, this government ran on Grizzly ending the hunt as a policy platform, which is unheard of. It's, you know, usually it's like healthcare or some highway or tunnel. Uh, but when it comes to a species, it's because we just have this iconic, you know, relationship with this grizzly bear. Um, and I feel like there's a disconnect from what this government has said and wants and what the, the staff is delivering. And so um, I think this is what we're pointing out is that, for example, they only gave five weeks for the public to respond to this issue they clearly have shown that they care about. And they did it in the middle of the summer when people are on their floaties with their kokanee and their kombucha and they're having a good time and all the hunting guides or uh, all the bear viewing guides are out watching these bears and bringing tourists from around the world. The biologists are out there doing the good work to protect this species. And they thought that that was a good time and only give five weeks. That's a bit ridiculous. So we're asking for that to be pushed until the end of the year to give the public the opportunity to engage, to give these experts uh, the opportunity to engage so that we can create and finish this wonderful document that the BC government has started. And that include everyone's input. Uh, the the document also says, and this is part of the executive summary, that uh, there is no evidence of a decline in the overall population of grizzly bears during the past 30 years. Uh, it says, though, most populations lack adequate abundance uh, information to detect changes in population trend. Is there any concern that, or are we paying enough attention, do you think, to the fact that, that this is an apex predator and if this population goes unchecked or if this population starts growing uh, in, in any significant way, we're going to start seeing grizzly bears in different areas, uh, more, more mixing of grizzly bears in urban areas, and that that could be an issue? Well, that's why one of the challenges with this report, too, is that right in the executive summary, they talk about this ancient predator-prey relationship, apex predator. This is old language. People know that grizzly bears, you need to be safe and careful around them, but they're not this big, scary, frightening animal that a document like this and the experts that wrote it should know, and yet they're still pushing that narrative. When they talk about um, populations, there's hardly any studies. So how can they say what they actually are, right? So that's another part of conjecture. And, you know, what's interesting is now we know that outside of Yellowstone, because all this great work has gone into Yellowstone to help recover that population, and it's on the rebound. In southwest BC is now the most endangered grizzly bear corridor in North America. And no one really talks about that. So I would argue that grizzly bears in some of places in their range in southwest BC, southeast BC, still need a lot of uh, work to protect them. Uh, and work in that uh, that would be keeping uh, the hunt, uh, the ban on, on hunting them in place? Yeah, that's right. And when you talk about safety, like that's what this document should be talking about, right? It's like we should be talking about coexistence. We should be giving these communities the tools to do this work to live 
alongside grizzly bears because of not only the economic opportunity and the you know the opportunity or the importance of their role in the ecosystems they roam um but british columbians clearly love grizzly bears um and back when they ended the hunt they did a survey and you know they talked about you know some people make this ridiculous argument i was trying to pitch you know urban versus rural and and that's you know unfair and uh for people who live in rural areas to make that generalization that, you know, nine in 10 British Columbians supported the decision to end the hunt and 65% of rural people and 71% of hunters all supported ending the hunt because we know that once the hunt is out of the way, we can get down to the real challenges of protecting this iconic species, which is coexistence and food security um, and just a general appreciation for this wonderful, charismatic animal. Uh, you mentioned the uh, the public feedback. So uh, the feedback on this particular uh, stewardship framework, and I, I agree with you, people are, are enjoying the summer weather and are probably not thinking of this. It's probably not in their top five at the absolute at, at the moment. Uh, so the public feedback goes until September 8th. Uh, they have pushed the consultation, though, uh, to, to extend. It was only supposed to be open for a few more days. It will go to the end of the year. Uh, do you think, though, that is enough time to get all the interested parties and to get a better picture on what needs to be done? Well, if they do push it to the end of the year, it gives those people who work and care and know a lot about this animal the opportunity to send in their feedback. And I'll commend the government. They've done a great job of engaging First Nations and engaging some of the NGOs and stakeholders. And so up until this point, they've just sort of abandoned the public's input, right? And so giving the public more time, uh, organizations that don't have a full-time staff member like myself who can work and spend the time to review a large document like this, um, that's going to give you a better document that's better for the bears, better for the communities, uh, and opens up all kinds of economic opportunity. Um, And that's what we're asking for is just a, a little more time. And like I said, The government has done amazing work. This could be a world-leading document. The work they've done with First Nations, some of the stuff that's in this report, like calling it a stewardship framework, is amazing. This could be a signature piece of conservation policy that people from around the world will admire. And the the people of BC want our government. We've spoken up before. We want them to take it seriously. And I hope they give us the time to do that. Nicholas Scapolati, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks, Jill. Um, Enjoy the summer. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.